week's episode, we went down to Macon, Georgia to talk to Mercer University professor David Davis about the podcast phenomenon S-Town. We hadn't originally planned to do an episode on S-Town, but almost every single listener asked if we were going to talk about it this season. And we like to give the people what they want. David agreed to join us for this conversation. He's the Associate Director of the Spencer B. King Jr. Center for Southern Studies, and his book, World War I and Southern Modernism, will be out in late fall. David and I came to this conversation as listeners and literature buffs, and we return to that perennial question, what's real about the South? And within that, what's real about S-Town? And a note, we do spoil the podcast. I mean, S-Town's podcast, not our own. So if you haven't listened to S-Town, there are spoilers. You may want to go listen to S-Town, it's only like seven hours of your life, and then you can return to our analysis if you're that interested. Or you can just learn everything you need to know about S-Town from us in 35 minutes. And another note, there is explicit language in this episode. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. Now, David, you wanted to be really clear with listeners. You are not an expert on S-Town. I'm not an expert on S-Town, but I come from an S-ish town. And listening to this podcast gave me feelings. And I have opinions. And I think now's a really good opportunity for us to, to share our opinions with Brian Reed and anyone else who's interested in S-Town itself. I was kind of wondering, as someone who thinks about Southern cultures and thinks about Southern literatures, why do you think S-Town was so immensely popular? Well, so in the first week or so that it came out, it had somewhere in the vicinity of 15 million downloads. And I imagine that its initial um, popularity has a lot to do with the fact that it's from the people who brought you Serial and This American Life. So it comes with um, an imprimatur, a gravitas that most podcasts aren't going to find. It doesn't struggle to find its initial audience. So that initial burst, that makes sense to me. But since then, um, it's now in the neighborhood of 40 million or so downloads, which is probably about the same territory as about South, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're really pushing the edge of that, but they're they're getting there. Um, so clearly, the the podcast has cultural traction, and this story of John B. Mclemore, it hits on so many elements of the imaginary, exotic weird South and reinforces them over and over. Dear Lord, it, in, it includes characters named Bubba and Boozer and it's in a small town and there's a corrupt police force and then the deeper we go into the story there are all these elements of the macabre and the grotesque and ultimately a term that I really don't like to use but it resonates the Southern Gothic. 
So this story helps us to reimagine and, and reinscribe that exotic South over again. I don't know that it's entirely coincidental, sort of post 45 mm-hmm. president, that S-Town also achieves this level of popularity because there was just this sense that um, some sort of version of Southern racism and weirdness, which is not wrong, is responsible for the situation we're in currently. Right. And so you have that immediately following, and granted it's probably, I mean, it's coincidental. Brian Reed was clearly working on this before the election. Right. But it reinforces what is already now kind of a popular news narrative of like, we have to understand the red state, like as if it's, homogenous as if that is a cohesive term and this sort of appears in this moment that there's already a desire to understand what's happening in shit towns in the south because how could they vote against their own interests how could this happen and like yeah i'm curious about that question too but i don't know that s town gets at an answer or premise any better than the one we already know. So this is the same cultural moment that made that god-awful book, Hillbilly Elegy, resonant and a top seller on Amazon and New York Times. Um, There's an urge or a a sense that people need to understand, in this case, shit town, but it's standing in as a proxy for rural America. A podcast like Shit Town, though, caricatures those rural people and makes them just that much weirder and more strange in a way that is very interesting and entertaining. Is it productive or useful though? Well, that's another issue. Something's happened. Something has absolutely happened in this town. There's just too much little crap for something not to have happened. And I'm about had enough of shit town and the things that goes on. From Serial and This American Life, I'm Brian Reed. This is Shit Town. And I also am kind of curious about... um, John B. McLemore sets himself up as a character Mm -hmm. pretty early on, right? He writes to this American life. He tries to get Brian Reed's attention. He gives him a handful of short stories from Faulkner and I think maybe Welty or someone else to read and says, if you want to understand my town, you need to read A Rose for Emily. And I'm like, really, Brian Reed? Dude, you've never read A Rose for Emily? Like, I don't buy that. Like, he acts like he went home and read it as if it were a revelation. Hey, this guy Faulkner is a pretty good writer. Yeah, like, have you heard of him? Yeah. I mean, he's done a thing or two. But, like, I wonder to what extent if we start to think about the ethics of representation around S-Town, to what extent is that Brian Reed and the producers? And to what extent does John B. McLemore, particularly in the first two episodes, attempt to position himself as a character in a story? Hmm. Yeah. 
in the first two episodes, I really felt like John B. McLemore is manipulating a willing subject in Brian Reed. Um, and as, as a reader of text, that raises another complicated issue. Where's the story here? You know, in Serial, there's a very clear true, true crime, whodunit story. And it's captivating week to week you know, what actually happened. In S-Town, it's the weirdness that drives the narrative. And it's pretty obvious from the way Brian Reed deploys the story as early as the first 20 minutes or so of the first episode that there isn't really a true crime narrative here. And we get all of this foreshadowing about, well, maybe this and maybe that, and it's going to be hearsay. And ultimately, it's clear even before it's announced that nothing criminal actually happened. Now, the story is really about John B., the weird character, and his suicide. Right. I, I would venture to say that if John B. Backlamore didn't kill himself, that Brian Reed would just have several hours of unused audio in his apartment and there wouldn't be a podcast. Is it really appropriate for Brian Reed to push the story so far into this man's personal, private life, especially after he committed suicide? So it's not like <clears throat> Brian Reed is a completely detached reporter. He's actually invested and involved and um, an antagonistic force within this entire narrative. And then we as, as listeners, readers, we as listeners are thus also invested in this process of exposing the details of this person's life. And as we move further and further into the narrative, especially into episodes six and seven, we're in an area where I don't think we had John B. McLemore's permission to be. I think about that the whole time. I mean, I did listen to it pretty quickly. I mean, I self-admittedly binged it. I sometimes laughed and sometimes rolled my eyes but as it got further and further into his personal life i thought a little bit like whoa like you know like slow your roll brian reed like this is someone who in some way you did become close to mm -hmm. and maybe he did disclose so much information to you and maybe he set himself up as a quasi fictional character in his own universe, right? He was attempting to build a larger-than-life persona for himself. Does that give you free reign to go into any part of this person's life and talk to all of these people? I mean, I'm sure he's getting, you know, I'm sure he signed an informed consent, just like you signed an informed consent. But after someone's death, I don't know if that's good enough. Hmm. You have to imagine if John B. McLemore intended to become a household name, I doubt that's for these particular reasons. And ultimately, he's a, a very private man. Um, so we're, yeah, we're treading on some really complicated territory. And he pointed out, I just signed an informed consent. That doesn't mean that I consented for you to go into every aspect of my life. I think there are certain limitations and expectations that apply to even the legal offering of informed consent. 
Does it go so far as um, his sex life? Mm, I don't know. Um, does it go so far as his mental health? Well, that's a little bit questionable as well. But then as listeners, we become complicit in that same process. 40 million downloads indicate that um, more than 10%, presumably, of the American population has voyeuristically listened in to John B. Backlamore's homosexual liaisons and his um, masochism. So we're part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know, um, one, if he was alive, it would not have been made, right? I don't see him saying like, yeah, air all of my life. And what's the interesting story there? And it also, uh, what about this white man from a small town in Alabama who sort of has a lot of stops and starts of different types of successes in his life, who is both pretty far on the left in terms of some social issues, and as Brian Reed points out, facilitates strongly into racism and misogyny at times. He is a full, complex human being who lives where he lives. That, but would that desire to look in and pull his life apart and like, oh, wow, this character, this man from the South, this human, like he's complex. Like that's the only revelation of the show. True. That True. a man from rural Alabama is a complex person and is surrounded by other complex individuals. Yes. Is there another thesis there? No. I really don't think so. And to, to go a step farther, complex, yes, but I think also highly caricatured and distorted. And partly because that's the way John B. McLemore seems to see the world through a very distorted lens. I should have, you know, you're, boy, if you use this in the future, you'll sure have to have a cuckoo bird bleep it. I should have got out of this goddamn fucking shit town in my 20s. I should have done something useful with my life. I love my home. I don't know why. You know, I've lived here all my life. My mom's lived here all her life. My dad's lived here most of his life, and Grandpa Miller's lived here all his life. Places like that should be important. I'm looking out over a yard. we got a rose garden here that's 300 fucking feet long. I've planted a hedge maze out here. It's the only one in the state. You can go to Google Maps and enter 33.202461 comma negative 87.13. Whoa, whoa, slow down. Let me uh, let me type this in as you're telling me. That should actually bring you to the center of the maze. Tell me the numbers again. 33.202465 comma negative 87.1. I'm going to hide a couple coordinates here for John's privacy. I type them into Google Maps. I should be close to within a few feet. Oh, there we are. That's your yard? Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, now It's an aerial view of acres and acres of forest. And then there, in the middle of the woods, is a huge labyrinth made of concentric circles of hedges with a path weaving through them. It also has little gates in it now, which that picture doesn't show. So you see, you can swap the solution around. It actually has 64 possible solutions, depending on how you swap the gates around. Oh, wow. So it really is amazing. 64 possible solutions, yes. That's crazy. Do you ever just go in and get lost in the maze? 
Well, it's not tall enough to get lost yet. It's only about hip high. You can still see over it. So when we're thinking about John B. McLemore's life and the deep detail that Reed goes into, we come to the revelation that he is returning to Tyler again and again to get tattooed or pierced, not out of what I think initially Bubba, one of the other guys had said was a financial, a way to help Tyler financially, but rather we hear from Tyler that it was some sort of ritualistic um, side, like self-flagellation. Mm. And that one feels like that's a detail that's been criticized a lot. And it also feels like one of those sort of heavily symbolic details that Reed wants to put in. I'll also note that any reader of Flannery O'Connor's Parker's Back, that is already a trope that exists in O'Connor, who is the darling child of everyone who loves Southern Gothic weirdness. So how do you see the ethics and the embodiment questions and the fact that um, places that rely on agriculture and manufacturing, people's bodies are already at risk. So how do you kind of read this moment or think about this moment that is also supposed to be relevatory that John B. McLemore is having some sort of um, desire towards body modification. And like, you know, I hate diagnosing people off of tweets or podcasts or anything else, but like, how do you see this? Right. That's a really complicated issue. And I, I think the way you, you, you pose the question already pulls out several of the, the important components. Um, one, there is the, the usage and disposal of the human body as uh, a, an item of labor. But in John B. McLemore's personal case, that's complicated because his career was much more intellectual labor than physical labor. But he's embedded in a matrix, in a community of people um, that had been agricultural and is now mostly manufacturing. And so the usage of the body as a, a laboring unit is definitely at play here. But then we come also back to the symbolism question of what's going on with these particular tattoos and how John B. is using his own body. Um, Brian Reed suggests to us that this is um, a form of therapy, of pain therapy, a way for John B. to quiet his overactive and depressive mind uh, through the stimulation of pain. And that's, that's an interesting and plausible speculation. Um, the story itself is embedded with so many elements of the literary apparatus um, that the symbolism becomes almost its own corpus. Pardon the pun. But then we have the symbolism of what John B. actually has tattooed on his body, which invites us to think a little bit more deeply. He has a bullwhip tattooed around his shoulders and red marks signifying um, welts and lashing all over his upper torso. Now, it's put in a place that's hidden. It's, it's, it's T-shirt size tattoos, so it goes the shoulders down to his waist, which indicates that this is not a public projection. So we get here again the privacy of his internal life, and the tattoos 
tattoos always tell a story, right? So these tattoos invite us to wonder what story John B. McLemore is telling. And it's, the imagery is very much about the mortification of the flesh. Yes, a reference to Parker's back is very much in play. Also think about Hazel Motes and Wise Blood where he's mortifying his own flesh towards the end of the story. So we get a sense that John B. is projecting his own complicated, tormented, psychological state onto his body and again projecting it in a way that it's private and internalized at the same time that it's externalized. And it also feels heavily racialized in this space of deep south Alabama that a white man would get because I think I think they narrate that he actually had Tyler and someone else whip him yes. and so you have this sort of I, I can't remember if Reed kind of speculates that John B. McLemore wanted to understand, like have some sort of, you know, truly empathetic, like understanding of what it was like to be whipped, right. which just evokes all of this, you know, troubling symbolism around slavery. It feels incredibly like unethical and disingenuous. I mean, but maybe it's, and I, I don't know if that's, in the telling that that gets put on it? Or is there something that John B. McLemore, or we want, we hope we're seeing him work through something like white aristocratic guilt in the space right. of the Deep South? That's a good point. And this podcast erases race. Absolutely. So, so with the except for the, except the suggestion that John B. is casually racist, we don't really see black voices or a black presence here. I think pretty much everyone I've talked to about S-Town has had a strong opinion. I mean, there are virtually no neutral opinions about the show. How much of the dislike of S-Town is something, put this in quotes, sort of Southern sensitivity. That like, yeah, I mean, we kind of like do know the Tylers of the world and we do know the Bubba's of the world and like, and I don't mean the actual names, but sort of like as metaphorical people. And it's never fun when someone like puts all that out front. Mm -hmm. Like, is there something maybe with more progressively minded Southerners that we just really hate when someone comes down and like shows the people that like, yes, we all know these people exist. And there's a, an awful lot of truth to that. Um, there's been a, an article making the rounds on the internet in the past couple of days that's provocatively titled, Fuck the South. I just read it this morning. Right. Um, and you know, it, de it debases the notion that the South has much of anything to contribute to uh, American culture. And while in my classes, I often challenge the notion of the South's contribution to American culture, I can't help but read that article and feel a little bit defensive about it because of the way it caricatures the South. 
Whereas I want to say, but wait, there are also Southern intellectuals. There are also significant Southern contributions to American culture. There's also Southern progressivism. So yeah, we're seeing a lot of those same dynamics playing out in S-Town. I grew up in a small Southern town and I could identify individuals who are coherent with all of the character types that we see in the podcast. But I also noticed that there are an awful lot of people from my hometown who are not represented in the podcast. So we end up with um, a monocular lens of this particular segment of the rural South that, that as I've said before, reinforces our notions of the exotic South. We don't see a functional version of the South here. Um, I'll also point out that we're seeing primarily a poor white iteration of the South in this. So even though um, Bibb County is majority African-American, there's virtually no African-American presence in the entire podcast. Um, even though uh, Woodstock is a relatively affluent middle-class exurb, except for the city representatives who show up from time to time, like the mayor and the police chief, we don't see a lot, uh, very many middle-class people in the town. And when we do, we're getting usually Boozer Downs who coheres to another set of stereotypes. This town, these people, these caricatures really exist. Ultimately, for all of its window dressing, the podcast is nonfiction. Yes, it's real but it's incomplete. And it's incomplete in a way that totalizes and obliterates the more holistic perception of southernness, small town southernness, urban southernism, um, what it's like to be a South. That's a very complicated, multiplex region. It, it was hard for me yeah, because I mean, I heard even if you think about, I think it's the accent of Tyler's girlfriend, mm -hmm. when she calls Brian Reed on the phone and says John Bass killed himself, like her voice sounded so like a voice I know. And right. I, I mean, I can't stand like authenticity games are the worst. Like, I'm not interested. But there is something about the town, um, or not the town, that's not true. There is something about the representation of the town that Brian Reed manages to put together something that simultaneously feels real, but I think every single listener also knows is completely fabricated. Yes. To me, it's a little bit, it's so heavy handed with its use of metaphor yeah. anyway, that the obvious metaphor here for the entire show is the gold, the gilded clock. Right. right or like any of these gilded pieces that John B. McLemore right. has created in his life yes like there's a real element to something but it is manufactured to look like something else hmm. and that gets me to the point that I was a little troubled towards the end though I um, am completely sort of of the mind I think it's in the next to last episode where they seriously discuss Mercury poisoning and I'm like oh yeah the dude had mercury poisoning this is not some great fantastical mystery 
it goes to such lengths to make itself a fantastical story that then in the next to last episode is like, oh, there's actually a really easy scientific explanation for all of this. And like, the guy had mercury poisoning. One day, I'm talking on the phone to one of John's old friends, a clock customer of his in Utah named Bill Meyer. And he starts describing this thing he would watch John do when he used to visit John's property in Woodstock. We'd go out in the woods and he had a tree stump out there, and he could take a burnsomatic torch and have a pot with mercury. Silvery, dense, fluid mercury. Bill would watch John heat the mercury into a slurry. John would take gold and melt the gold into the mercury, mixing the pot out there in the woods, like a witch stirring ingredients in her cauldron. And then, Bill says, John would take a brush and spread the gold and mercury amalgam onto a clock, and then hold the torch flame to it, vaporizing the mercury, and leaving behind a rich, textured layer of gold. It's an ancient process that appears to have originated around 300 BC or so in China, called fire gilding, that almost no one does anymore. Bill's a prolific, lifelong clock collector, and he says John is the only person he ever found in the United States who would do it. No one does it, because inhaling mercury vapor is so ridiculously dangerous. You heard the expression, mad as a hatter? Yeah, I tell Bill, but I don't really know where it comes from. He explains that for centuries in Europe, milliners, people who made hats, would turn furs into felt for hats by vaporizing mercury. And as a result... They'd go mad. They'd go crazy. That was the outcome of breathing mercury vapor. Because it does permanent brain damage. But then, interestingly... Just when I thought I was troubled about that reason, the last episode comes along and we close with that scene of John B. McLemore's mother in the yard of this inherited property from this guy who was this, I don't know, he's like a horse thief or something. I can't remember the details. And like, she's sitting in the yard, like praying over her pregnant belly, like make my son a genius. Come on. Like, so that's the real answer? I don't know. Tell me what to think, David. I think it, it, it's really kind of hilarious and ludicrous and some of it's, its eccentricity. Um, and sometimes I wonder if, if Ryan Reed is being um, completely straight with us. No, I don't think he is. <laughs> Brian, if you're listening, call us and let us know. We've touched on this already, but this idea that in this sort of narrative fantasy world, even though this is a show about real people with real and complicated lives, it is so framed from beginning to end as fictional, even with the closing music is the Rose for Emily song. Right. Can the South like ever be its real self in these spaces? Or has it been so hyper-narrativized that it's sort of, not to sound too like philosophical about it, and I hate this phrase, but it's sort of always already a fictional space as soon as you put the South on the front stoop of popular culture. Yeah. So therein is the crux of what Scott Roman argues in The Real South, the notion that the South is always already a cultural reproduction. Um, as much as I appreciate that particular book, I'm a little bit hesitant to go that far. I, you know, there, 
this is a landscape where people actually live and whether we call it the south or not and whether we use the adjective southern or not is immaterial to the fact that people are here. It's when we evoke those terms of South and Southern that we begin to layer on the imaginary layers of reproduction and um, complication over whatever reality is underneath it until to the point that the reality becomes itself pretty much obscured and almost replaced by the reproduction. Here, I think, though, is a good opportunity for us to make a distinction between the telling and the tale. So there's a story being told here about John B. McLemore, and it unfolds over a period of several years, from 2012, when John B. McLemore first sends the email um, proleptically titled, John B. McLemore Lives in Shittown, Alabama, um, until... John B.'s suicide and the aftermath of the story, which continues to unfold. But so there's, there's, there's a layer of the real, the story, that's very messy and very complicated. And then we have the telling. And I think the telling drives the narrative of this particular podcast much more than the tale. Because Brian Reed has set it up so that we're unfolding a mystery that gets deeper and deeper and deeper. From the very beginning where he begins with a riff about um, witness marks and a clock, he's setting us up with layers of symbolism and signification. He's buying in over and over again to the tropes, the references to um, Southern Gothic fiction, the use of the zombie song, uh, A Rose for Emily, as the closing music. Um, all of these novelistic elements of the production. And in fact, reviewers have praised the podcast for its novelistic form and have coined the term um, oral literature to suggest that this might be an entirely new genre of presentation. Oh, that can't be true. Well, maybe not entirely new, but kind of line that Truman Capote was crossing in In Cold Blood where we have a nonfiction story that is embellished with all these elements that are normally associated with fiction. Symbolism, so this is a, a telling in the tale distinction. Symbolism doesn't exist in the real world. It just doesn't. Right. The symbolism of the clock does not actually signify the briefness of a human life. Our imagination attaches that. And so in this podcast, Brian Reed frequently appeals to our already fertile imaginations. And he only has to, to make a very slight nudge in many places for us to fill in the details. Think, for example, about the buried treasure, um, the gold bullion somewhere on the property. As readers of Southern fiction, you know, we're immediately thinking of Faulkner's The Hamlet and the real estate deal that goes wrong. But at the same time, we're also getting little bits of Treasure Island. And we're getting um, all these other different layers of literary imagination that are attached to this. And so it's easy for us to pro project onto Tyler Goodson as the person who feels like he has a claim to the gold and is going to go out in the dead of night and dig it up. And, and, and the podcast leaves us with just enough tantalizing ambiguity for us to wonder if he found it. 
So all these elements of literary depiction are brought to the story of actual people, actual people who are very complicated. And in the work of literature, the literary depiction, the, the irony, the symbolism, the tropism, all of that complicates the imaginative text. I worry that when we take the same apparatus and apply it to, quote, real life, that that apparatus doesn't actually oversimplify the reality. There's our S-Town episode, or as I like to call it, our podcast about a podcast. We'd like to thank David Davis for joining us this week. He was a consummate host in Macon, and we really enjoyed being there. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia, and we'd like to invite you to join us in the West End at Lean Draft House on August 4th. Details will be on our Facebook page and the website. Kelly Vines produced this episode. Joe Danso is another co-producer and Lindsay Baker is our marketing director. Theme music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com, as well as our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. We post a lot of great extra content there and visuals, so we really encourage you to check it out. If you haven't already, we'd like to ask that you rate and review us wherever you find your podcast. It really helps other people learn about our work. Next week, we're in Alexandria, Virginia at Gadsby's Tavern, looking at the art exhibit Centennial of the Everyday by Baltimore artist Lauren Francis Adams and Stuart Watson. We are really excited to bring you that episode, and we are also looking forward to seeing you on August 4th. 